you remember a couple weeks ago, uh, the title of the message was An Overlooked Blessing. And I believe prayer is one of those things that is often an overlooked blessing. It's, as a matter of fact, in most churches, if you want to have a very small, intimate meeting, you call a prayer meeting because so very people, few people come to that prayer meeting. And it's something that's, that's, I think, the enemy wants to keep that way. He wants to deceive us somehow. You know, we become a new Christian, and all of a sudden, we don't know how to pray. We don't want to pray. We're scared to pray. It won't sound quite King, English, King James English enough or something. And that's a lie from the enemy. He, he lost us. He loses us to the kingdom of God when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But he wants to limit that fellowship and that intimacy with him because he understands and knows as we develop that closer and closer walk of intimacy with the Lord, we begin to hear his voice more clearly. And we begin to hear his voice more clearly and we respond to it in obedience. We become more powerful instruments to expand the kingdom of God to do the works that he's called us to. So he wants to, if he can, shut off. That'd be like being on the front lines of warfare, but all communication has been severed with the officers who make the plan, the commanders in chief. It would be separated from that. God has warned us that we are in a spiritual warfare. You know, our enemy is not flesh and blood, amen? Our, flesh, our enemy is spirit. We're at war. We've been called to be uh, in that war. We are called to be soldiers in that war. We are called to be continually advancing the kingdom by the grace of God as he leads us, as he empowers us. And prayer is critical to being effective in doing that. That's one of the reasons Satan hates it. He wants to block us from being able and free. And remember this, we were created by God for fellowship. We were created by God for fellowship. When sin came into the picture in the Garden of Eden, that fellowship was broken because of sin. And God, of his own volition, he took the initiative. He took the initiative to implement his plan to send his own son to die on a cross, to be crucified, buried, and raised again from the dead, to restore and give that opportunity for us to become children of God. The barrier was removed. You know, last week when Pastor Jim was here to share with us, he talked about being intentional. We have to make choices. There is no more important choice that we will ever make than whether or not we choose to receive that gift of salvation through Jesus Christ by grace, by faith, or not. And the reality is when we put it off, think there's plenty of time, whatever, we're making a decision. We're saying, no, thank you. No, thank you. And the only way to become a child of God is to accept the gift, make that choice. And he did all this of his own initiative, offers it to us to restore fellowship with us, to restore, to tear the veil down, to remove the barriers. Our sins have been forgiven. He's given us the the cloak of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So there's no barrier. And yet Satan, I believe Satan, tries to prevent us from doing that, and quite frankly, our flesh keeps us from doing that. We think it's too much work, it's boring or ineffective. We don't have time. Our flesh is an enemy of prayer, and Satan, of course, will use that. 
So last, two weeks ago, as we were talking about prayer, I started, and we're in Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be, I think, getting to eventually. But we talked about how when the disciples came to Jesus, and one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. We were looking at that, and last week I was trying to set a background to that particular question being asked. Because when you think about it, think of all the amazing things that the disciples saw Jesus do from from healing the lepers and the sick and causing the crippled and the lamed and the deformed to be made whole and to walk, shoot, raising the dead. And this is what they asked him. Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't ask him to teach us to do any of those other things. And I talked last week. I, I think the question is way more loaded than our mind might naturally think when we just read that those few words. Lord, teach us to pray. Remember, these were praying people. The Jews had been praying for centuries. Even the Gentiles were praying to some God somewhere. So these, these disciples, it wasn't, gee, a new concept. It was like, there's something different about the way Jesus prays compared to any way they've seen anybody else pray. They'd experienced for years the, the deadness, if you would, of the religion of that day. But when they saw Jesus and they heard his message and they saw his walk, they saw anything but dead religion. Lord, teach us to pray like you're praying. I believe that they saw a lifestyle of prayer that was intriguing to them that they've not seen before. They saw something that wasn't a religious duty or a religious exercise. It was an example, a picture of them, even for our Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, to demonstrate total dependency upon the Father for everything that he did. And out of that total dependency on the Father, they saw an intimacy develop in the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And they wanted that. that. They wanted those things. They wanted to be able to, to walk and minister in the power, the authority, and the intimacy that comes with knowing you've heard the Father's voice, knowing what he's asking you and speaking to you is in his will. And with that came in Jesus just this unbelievable confidence in who he was. And we can sometimes say, well, that was Jesus. That wasn't us. He was God, yes, but he was all man. And we know that he chose to set aside many of his attributes when he was on earth, remaining God, but choosing not to tap into what was his before he came to earth. And we're going to look at, as we go through this today, a little bit more on Jesus and his, his own declaration of his dependency on the Father. So the attitude of Jesus in prayer. First, it was a way of life for Jesus. And we're to be like Christ. It was a way of life. It was never a religious duty. And not only was it a way of life, it was a necessity of his life. It was like eating, breathing, drinking water. It was a necessity of life, prayer. He couldn't do what he did without prayer. A lesson for us. It was a means of communion with his father. Not just gathering information, but communion. Knowing the Father's heart, continually being tapped in 
to the Father's heart, the Father's will, and to the power of God. And it was a means of bringing that power, that power of God, the Father, to bear on the humanity of Jesus, that aspect of him, which was all man. And he relied on it, really, it appears, moment by moment. He repeated over and over, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own. A couple scriptures in John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus has just healed the man at the pool of Bethsaida. And, of course, anytime he did anything, especially if it was on a Sunday or a Sabbath, I should say, a Saturday at that time, on a Sabbath, the Pharisees were there to make accusations. And in his, Jesus responding to them, he says, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Nothing of himself. Unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is declaring, and this really ticked the Pharisees off even more because he's calling himself the Son of God. But what he's declaring for us is really important. I can't do anything. I don't do anything of my own volition. Whatever the Father wants me to do, whatever he wants me to say, that's what I do, that's what I say. A little further in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 10. And this is in context. It's after the Lord, what we call the Lord's Supper. He's been talking to the disciples, explaining to the disciples what was about to happen. And then he says to them, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. Not even the words. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In other words, if you don't believe my words, look what I've been doing. I can't do that on my own. But God, the Father in me, enables me. He does them through me. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Do you believe in him? That we should be doing the works he did. If we believe, we will be doing those works. And greater works than these will be do, he do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, whatever you pray and ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. When we look at this, even in Isaiah, way back in Isaiah, uh, 42, 43, somewhere in there, it's quoted in Matthew chapter 12. He quotes Isaiah the prophet who's, who prophesies, I will put my spirit on him, and then he shall proclaim. It's like until the Father's spirit came on him. Then he would proclaim. He would speak because he could hear the voice of God through the, through the Holy Spirit. And a little bit later when he was casting out demons, he had just cast out a blind and dumb spirit and, of course, irritated the Pharisees, the religious people. And they accused him of casting out a demon in the name of Beelzebul. And he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, notice that in Matthew uh, 12, he says, if I cast out by the Spirit of God, Spirit of God, casting it out, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
The church, the kingdom of God has not only come upon us, it's in us. The kingdom of God resides in us in the Holy Spirit. Yes, the kingdom of God is, is, is here, but it's yet coming. We get that, and if that confuses you, we'll fix that sometime later. But when he returns, it's actually his kingdom will be set up on here on earth. But right now, his kingdom has already come, in part, if you would, and it lives in us, dwells in us. It appears when you look at these scriptures, and there's many more, that Jesus is clearly letting us know that he didn't perform these works. He didn't say all these amazing things in his teaching, independent of the Father or independent of the Holy Spirit moving on him. Acts 2, verse 22 says this. Men of Israel, this is Jesus speaking again. Listen to the, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not Jesus, it's um, Peter in his first sermon. And he says, listen to this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God the Father provided through him. Through him. In your midst, just as you already know. It appears that it was God working through Jesus in all these things. And we could go through story after story or example after example in the scriptures where we see Jesus and prayer being such a consistent pattern of his life. He didn't do anything of himself. Just a couple of spots to give you examples. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus had been, been busy as all get out. They were bringing the blind, the lame, the sick. They were bringing people to him left and right. He was casting out demons. And they were bringing to him in the middle of this amazingly busy schedule. How many of you are busy? Yeah, right. Just think. Here's Jesus. He's, he's healing everybody. They're bringing, it says everybody from the area, the region's bringing everybody to him. They're just clamoring for him, to him, wanting to get around him. And it says, what did he do? The next morning, it says he went to a lonely place. He sneaked off up into a mountain to pray. He was never too busy to pray. And he knew to be doing the works that the Father had for him to do, he needed to be in prayer. He needed to be in communion with his heavenly Father. The Son can do nothing by himself. In Luke chapter 6, you know, would we do this? You've got all these people following you. They're already calling the disciples in a generic sense. But all of a sudden, the Father tells them, you need to pick 12. You need to pick 12. Okay, let's see. <clears throat> Please, write up a resume. Give me your experience. Give me your education. Tell me about your giftings. I need to get the 12 cream at the top. No, not the way Jesus worked at all. There was nothing natural about the way he selected the 12 disciples. What did he do? He went up into the hills and he prayed. And when he got finished, I mean, I wouldn't have chosen Judas if I was him. But he prayed, Father, Show me. He came down out of the mountain. He picked his 12. He can't do anything. He doesn't do anything. He chooses not to do anything in his own strength. Another story that we're probably all very familiar with is Lazarus, when Lazarus died. If you remember the story, Jesus waited a couple days, so he did die. And when he got there, he meets with Mary, and he meets with Martha, and they finally go to the tomb, and 
before he does anything else, what does he do? It says he had been in prayer. He'd been talking to the Father. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have listened to me. That's how I know he was talking to the Father. Before he does anything, he says, Father, thank you that you have listened to me. And then he says, I'm just saying that so everybody else around here gets it. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. He had been in communion with the Father. He didn't choose to wait two days. He heard the Father telling him to wait two days. He had been praying and walking. I am convinced that as he was praying or walking, he was praying as they were traveling to get there. The the son didn't do anything without the father. The feeding of the 5,000. Remember the story. What do we got? Well, we got a few fish and a couple loaves of bread. We haven't got much. We'll bring what you've got. What did he do then? He took the food and he held it up. And it says he blessed the food and gave thanks for the food. And then he handed it to the disciples and said, take it. There's plenty. There's going to be leftovers all over the place. I'm adding a little bit to the scripture there. But we see nothing without the Father's blessing. And if you think about this for a moment, this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God. Perfect man. You know, the, the, the creator. The creator of everything. The one who fulfilled the, the will of the Lord perfectly. He brought joy and delight to the Father's heart. Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am so well pleased. This is him. And yet this is the Jesus who always communed with the Father to get direction from the Father, to tap into the Father's power before he did anything. How much do you think we need to do that if Jesus did? We are missing the boat if we just operate in our own strength. We're missing the boat. You know, you probably heard this quote. I have no idea where it came from. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Boy, it's a lot easier when God works and all we're doing is cooperating. And that's what Jesus did. And as I said earlier, think, think of the, the tool, the weapon this is. Prayer. But it's not just a tool. It's not just a weapon. It's the key to communion and fellowship with Father God. We're his children. He killed, he allowed his son to be killed on a cross so we could have this kind of fellowship, this kind of intimacy with him. And it's critical for us to walk out the destiny that we have in Christ, this prayer. Can you see why the enemy hates it so much? Can you see why it's something that that, that the church needs to rise up in individually and corporately to be praying be praying and communing and be in that place of intimacy with God because what happens out of that intimacy becomes this confidence in him. It humbles us. It creates a dependency in us. And it gives us a confidence in him when we're called and asked to do something. 
everything he did came about through prayer. Back to the disciples' request. Lord, teach us to pray. This was not just about the mechanics. It wasn't just about the right words. It was about an attitude. The motivation behind the words. Behind the mechanics. And that's where we see in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 2, Jesus begins to really address this. Before we look at the verses, I just want to give you seven statements, a few about what prayer is and about what it isn't. And I think, I hope that these are not really new to you. But the first one is simply this. Prayer, our prayer life should be a demonstration of our awareness of just how much we need him because we're completely inadequate to do anything of our own will. Nothing we do in our own strength, our own ambitions, none of that is of any eternal benefit whatsoever unless it's what the Lord has for us to do. And then it brings eternal consequences and eternal benefits. And when we stand before the throne, our rewards are going to be so increased. Depending what you think those awards are, rewards are, if they're crowns, jewels in my crown, I want my head to barely be able to hold it up. We need to know and be confident in who he is and what he wants us to do. It teaches us about his complete adequacy and willingness. In Corinthians 3, verse 5, it says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. How many of you know that goes against our culture, goes against our way of thinking in every way you can imagine? I am all right. Look at me. Look at the gifts I have. Look at the talent I have. Look at the training I have. Look at the the experience I have. Look at all these things. Wow, aren't I something? I can just about fix anything. You know, as the word was encouraged from the worship team this morning, you know, there's mountains in our way. How come you haven't moved them yet? Whether it's a big mountain or a little hill, why are they still there? Because you and I can't move them. We can work our tail off. We can kind of push them a little bit to the side or figure out how to try to climb over it. Maybe we're going to dig a tunnel and go under it. But the mountain doesn't go away. We're inadequate. But God's not. There are no limitations on what God can do. Number two, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Sometimes I think we think God just doesn't want to do these things. Well, let me know. Let me tell you that if, according to the word, if I ask anything in his will, if I ask anything in his name, which means in accordance with who he is, what he's done in his will, if I ask anything, he'll do it. It's not about overcoming reluctance. It's just tapping into an us understanding he's always willing. And I don't understand exactly the connection between my doing and him doing, but it's there. It's part of our uh, way of working in the kingdom. It's not for emergency use only. You know, Jim last week, Pastor Jim, when he was here, I believe it was just, I think it was him. Help me if I'm wrong. But I think he talked about after the attacks of 9-11. 
And I think most of us can remember, man, oh, man, people were flocking to the churches like crazy. We had to get together and pray. Well, he said statistics showed that it lasted six months. I, I, I would never have guessed that long because it looked like it disappeared just that quick. It's not just for emergencies. Absolutely, it should be in emergencies. But not stimulated by the emergency. It should be an emergency because that's what we're doing all the time. Whether there's an emergency or not, we're praying. Gee, we were praying for our country then. I don't know if our country needs prayer now or not. What do you think? We need to be praying. We need to plug in to God. It'll keep us in a place of humility. Humility is a big deal in the kingdom. Amen? You know that, right? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. We are such a proud people. We're such a proud race of people. But when we start praying and praising and adoring God for who he is, declaring who he is, He's holy. He's righteous. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He's, he's filled with grace and love and mercy. Man, I start praying that, and it's like, geez, I'm less than a worm. And it should be like that. It should humble us to realize in and of ourselves we are inadequate. We plug into him. It's not just to bail us out of the, the, the most recent mess. Number three, he is not a wishing well, and it's not Aladdin's lamp. You know, well, let's see, let's see, we just rub a prayer here, and we'll poof, we'll get what we want. No, that's not it at all. It's about communing with him, knowing his heart, hearing his voice, recognizing what his will is. It's not just this magic little thing to get what we want. On the flip side, I think it's number five up there. It is a means of intimate communion, fellowship, and dependence upon him. You know, as we start, if we don't have a very, very developed prayer life yet, quite honestly, as we start, it's going to feel like we're just rubbing fingernails on the chalkboard. It's just not not working. It's not easy. But let me just encourage you in this way. You know, when you walk into a room and you meet someone and you don't know hardly anything about them, it's a little awkward, isn't it? To talk to them, to, to, to carry on a conversation with them. It doesn't get intimate very fast. Now, God's different than that. But at the same rate, as we first start entering into this type of fellowship and communion, it's going to take a little effort if we've not been doing it. It's going to take a little consistency. God wants to draw us to himself, but he wants it to come out of us of our own free will, our choice. As Jim said last week, be intentional, choices. And as we do that, all of a sudden, prayer becomes not work, not labor, not a religious exercise. It becomes a time of communion with God that we desire and we need, it begins to change dramatically. It's for everyday living. Number six, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, moment by moment. Um, I, I think I'm not different than most of you. A lot of things come down the pike, you just do it because you think you can. Maybe even almost know you can't. 
But I find myself wondering more and more, I wonder if it wouldn't have went better if I'd have prayed about it first. I think I shared a couple of weeks ago, you know, I might have an appointment with someone that I know is going to be a challenging appointment. But I've been doing those challenging appointments for a long time. So I'm busy doing whatever I do, and they show up and walk into my office. And I just handle it. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But what I realize is it'll always work better if I pray first. Lord, what should I say? How should I say it? How can I, li- how can I help in this situation? And all of a sudden, it's just a whole lot easier. You know, because one of the negative side effects of not doing it that way is if it works, aren't I something? If it doesn't work, geez, I'm worthless. I forget who I am in Christ. I open the door to the enemy to just beat the pulp out of me. You're a loser. You're a failure. Can't you do anything right? Boy, you just ruined their life. But if we go to the Lord and we're doing what we know he has told us to do, it's up to him. It's up to the Holy Spirit to do the work. All we are is obedient. I don't think Jesus worried one time when he told the demon to leave whether or not it was really going to leave. I don't think he worried once when he went up to a dead body being paraded down the street and brought it back to life. I wonder if this is going to work. You know, he didn't raise every dead body. Guess what he did? He raised the ones that the Father told him to go raise. You know what? Praying for healing. Boy, I don't think he worried. And we're not supposed to worry because it's not us that heals anybody. We're just called to pray for people. And man, do you notice though with all of a sudden you're, you're there and uh, the Lord speaks to you. You're praying, God, show me something. Help me, show me something. And it may be just a word of knowledge. All of a sudden you realize what happens to the faith thermometer. Man, does that thing go up? You know, and you pray for them, your confidence is there. It doesn't matter whether anything happens or not at that moment. You just know God told you something, and you're going to go do what he told you to do. And that's the way our life should be on a day-to-day basis. It's really, number seven, prayer is the means of claiming God's promises for ourselves and knowing his will and becoming abandoned to his will. We have such an opportunity through prayer to connect with God and our destiny. And I guarantee you, as we do that and begin to walk out that destiny, man, there is going to be a sense of, of peace and joy. Just fill your heart. You're going to walk in a new confidence in knowing who Christ is, who God is, and who you are as his child. It's an amazing thing. In John 14, 12, that I read, notice as I read it again, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And then notice, whatever you ask, that's prayer. Whatever you ask, I'll do. And he goes on in verse 14, if you ask, that's prayer. Anything in my name, I will do it. Notice the connection between prayer and the work. If you ask, I'll do it. If you ask, I'll do it. Boy, that's a lot harder, easier than I think I'll try to do this. 
think I'll try to do this. God, now I'm really in trouble. Will you do it now? Ask. There is a connection. And we need to realize and remind ourselves in our own strength we can't do anything of value. I'm going to close today in the middle of this with one last scripture. When we begin to understand that real Christianity is living a life, living our life by faith in God who lives and dwells in us. That's the beginning of real Christianity. I'm going to live my life with a confidence in God, the Holy Spirit that lives in me. And begin to understand as in a real Christian life that prayer is God's means for us to draw ourselves into or be drawn into this miraculous life in Christ. And Paul expressed it this way, and this is the scripture I'll close with today, in Galatians 2, verse 20. I think this came up in our prayer at the academy class this week. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified. How many of you know crucifixion brought death? I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, Mike's dead and can do nothing in his own strength or his own power of any eternal value whatsoever. However, Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm still here, I'm still flesh and bones, but the old me is dead. This new me is going to live and walk according to faith because Christ lives in me. The Son of God who loved and gave himself up for me. Faith in that. And really our faith, our faith should really be expressed in our prayer life. And I know, I've confessed before you, my prayer life's not what it should be. The more I study and read about this, the more convicted I get. But I'm convinced that no matter where your prayer life is, God wants to take you to new depths. I believe and I hope you believe that God's plan and vision and mission for Victory Christian Church is nowhere near to fruition. We are just somewhere along the path that he has for us. We are called to to affect southwest Minnesota and the world. We, We have seen prophetic words of things that God has for us, and we're seeing some of them, but there's oh so much more. And I believe as we really press in, you know, a lot of you don't realize that there are prayer groups that meet here at the church. There's a group that meets every other Thursday. They don't, they don't even start till 9 o'clock. Ugh. Hmm. I wonder if 9 o'clock's a problem if you're communing intimately with the Father. And they go till 11. I sneak out at about 22 because I'm tired. I think there's something wrong with me. The other night at Academy class, we prayed for about an hour and 20 minutes, and I'm pretty certain there's a whole lot of people never thought prayer was possible for more than 10 minutes. When we start to plug into this, it changes us, it empowers us, and God will advance the kingdom 
through us in ways we'd never imagined. So let's close in a moment, a brief moment of prayer. Lord, I pray that as we continue to seek you and look into your word and discover more about the, the amazing blessing that prayer is, and God, how, how it's become so often in our lives a, a blessing that we've missed completely. God, I pray that you would extend grace to each one of us. I pray, Lord, that no one here would feel condemnation, guilt, or shame because of their prayer life, Lord, but they would feel an encouragement in your Holy Spirit drawing them to spending that time in intimacy with you. Lord, I thank you that you made that possible through Jesus Christ, your only son, by his death and resurrection that we can come directly to the Father. And I pray, Lord, as we continue to look at the the model of prayer that Jesus gives us as he answers this question or this request, Lord, teach us how to pray. I pray, Lord, that we embrace it, but we aren't bound by any of it, that we would discover true fellowship and intimacy with you. And I ask, Lord, now that as we do go in our different directions, that your Holy Spirit would go before us that we would hear your voice clearly. God, that we would truly be the hands and feet of Jesus as we go out as your ambassadors this week into the workplace and to all the places we may go. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.